I'm Chris Kresser, and this is Revolution Health Radio. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. For the past 50 years, we've been told that eating meat, saturated fat, and cholesterol is unhealthy. Recently, a growing number of people are turning to a vegetarian or vegan diet with the goal of improving their health. But is it really true that meat and fat are bad for us? And are vegetarian and vegan diets a good choice for optimizing health and extending lifespan? If not, what is the optimal human diet? Join me on the Joe Rogan Experience on Thursday, September 27th, as I debate these questions with vegan doctor Joel Kahn. You can tune in live at 12 noon Pacific time at joerogan.live. That's J-O-E-R-O-G-A-N.live. Or you can catch the recording at podcasts.joerogan.net on YouTube or in iTunes or Stitcher. If you'd like to receive updates about the debate, including links to the recording and new articles and information I've prepared on this topic, go to cresser.co slash rogan. That's cresser.co slash rogan and put your email in the box. Okay, now on to the show. Hey everybody, Chris Cresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, we're actually going to do a reader-submitted question. I don't know when the last time I did one of these is. It's been quite a while. We've had a lot of um, fascinating interviews with guests that I hope you've enjoyed. But today, we're going to take a question from Carrie. So let's give that a listen. Hi, Chris. Carrie Bennett from Carrie B Wellness. I have a question when it comes to a high-fat diet and the health of the gut microbiome when I'm coaching my nutrition clients. Uh, after reading uh, the Sonnenberg's book um, about gut health and the gut microbiome, it seems to be that their recommendation is that fat can change the gut microbiota in a negative way. I'm just wondering how you view this in light of a Paleolithic primal style diet. I'm wondering if the studies that they're referencing are utilizing poor fat sources as opposed to high quality pastured or grass fed animal fats. And just your take on is high fat healthy for the gut microbiota? Thanks for any information you can provide. Okay, great question, Carrie. Thanks so much for sending it in. I'm going to answer that specifically, but I also want to use it as a springboard for a general discussion of problems with nutritional research. The first issue is that most of the research related to a high-fat diet and the effects on the gut microbiome have been done in rodents. And while rodent research is certainly valuable and there's a lot that we can learn from it, the results don't necessarily apply to humans, especially in, in the case of a high-fat diet when within the rodent research, the most common high-fat diet uses highly processed and refined fats like corn and soybean oil. Now, that very well may apply to many Americans who are eating a high-fat diet because if they're eating out at restaurants or even stores with prepared foods, or they're eating a lot of packaged and processed and refined foods, then many of those are going to contain industrialized, uh, industrial seed oils like corn and soybean and cottonseed and safflower and sunflower oils. 
And those oils have a different effect on the gut microbiome than some traditional fats would. In humans, the research correlating high-fat diets with changes to the gut microbiome is almost exclusively observational, as far as I know, which means that it suffers from many of the issues that I detailed in my recent article uh, critiquing the, the study which claimed to find that low-carb diets shorten our lifespan. That was just a train wreck of a study, and I uh, went through it kind of uh, point by point. And if you haven't had a chance to check that out, you can um, probably just Google Cresser low-carb diet shortens lifespan and you'll find it. But I'll just briefly highlight some of the main points from that article as it relates to this question that Carrie sent in. The first is the most obvious, at least if you've been following um, my work or, or this field for any length of time, and that is that correlation is not causation. So it, an observational study just follows groups of people and examines uh, certain variables like their diet or their lifestyle, and, and then they, they look for associations between those variables. So for example, in this case, they would look and see that people who ate a high-fat diet tended to have worse gut microbiota. But the first thing you learn if you take a research methodology class in college or grad school is that when two variables are associated together, that doesn't mean that one is causing the other. And that's what the phrase correlation is not causation means. And there are a lot of um, kind of silly examples that are used to make this point. So uh, if you consider the statement, the more firefighters that are sent to a fire, the more damage gets done. That's, that's obviously a ridiculous statement, right? That's not how it works. It's not that more firefighters are causing the damage. It's that when fires are worse, more firefighters are required to fight the fire. So in that example, the causation would be reversed. Another one is children who get tutored get worse grades than children who don't get tutored. So again, the causality there is reversed. The children who are not getting good grades in the first place are the ones that are more likely to hire a tutor or, or at least their parents will. So, you know, there are a lot of uh, examples like that, uh, just to make the point that you have to be very careful with assuming that two variables that are correlated together are one is causing the other. There's actually a whole website that's dedicated to kind of mocking this, this assumption that unfortunately is very common in, in the mainstream media, and I'll come back to that in a second. It's, it's called um, Spurious. It's a page on someone's website, um, Tyler Viggen. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. It's called Spurious Correlations. And he just went, uh, I'm not sure where he found all this stuff, but he, he went and found correlations that are just ridiculous. So for example, US spending on science, space, and technology correlates with suicides by hanging, strangulation, and suffocation at 99.8%, which is almost a perfect correlation of 100% being perfect. Uh, I think we can all agree it's pretty obvious that US spending on science, space, and technology is not causing suicides by hanging, strangulation, or suffocation, or vice versa. Another one of my favorites is the, the divorce rate in Maine 
correlates with per capita consumption of margarine at 99.3%. So again, it's obvious that there's no causality there, even though those two variables are, are highly correlated. So this is really critical to keep in mind when you're looking at any observational study, because observational studies were never designed to prove causality or, or to, you know, to show that one variable is causing another. To do that, we need a randomized controlled trial. There are certain situations where it's not practical to do a randomized controlled trial, and we have to do our best to apply certain criteria to the observational or epidemiological data to at least increase the probability of determining whether there's a causal relation. Uh, relationship. And these are referred to as Bradford Hill criteria. And uh, these were originally published in 1965, if I remember correctly. And they include a number of different criteria, like the strength of the relationship, whether the, the relationships are connected together in time, and several other factors that when you put them all together, if those criteria are met, it significantly increases the likelihood that there's a causal relationship. But that's not done in many of these studies. And in fact, many epidemiologists have, especially you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, um, were sounding the alarm and saying, uh, look, if we do an observational study, if the risk is not at least two or three times higher you know, let's say we're talking about a high fat diet and microbiota, if you don't see at least a two or three or even higher fold risk among, you know, that, that a high fat diet is, is contributing to uh, worse microbiota, then we can't really even, you know, we might as well just not even pay attention that these small relative increase in risk, like 15% or 30% or even 50% higher relative risk in observational research is not strong enough to really show us that there's anything that we should be investigating. You want to see at least 200 or 300% higher risk. I think in the smoking, the cigarette smoking and cancer studies, lung cancer studies, it was like 3000% higher. Okay. So if you see, you know, variables correlated and one, one is leading to a 3,000% higher risk of something else, then yeah, that's, that's something that you're going to pay a lot of attention to and ideally do a randomized controlled trial for. I mean, that's not ethical with smoking, and that's a good example of where you use things like the, the Bradford Hill criteria to try to suss out whether there is a causal relationship. But in many of these observational studies that are being published, you'll see you know, references to like a 10, 20, 30% increase. And that's just almost impossible to, to differentiate, uh, uh, you know, from the noise in a big sample of people. So any observational studies that have showed that people who eat high fat diets have inferior gut microbiota are just showing a correlation between those two variables. They do not prove that their high fat intake is the cause of the poor gut microbiota. Why? Well, because of the phenomenon known as the healthy user bias, which I've written about and talked about on this show quite a bit. So people who engage in a behavior that's perceived as healthy are more likely to engage in other behaviors that are also perceived as healthy 
and vice versa. So because fat has been perceived as unhealthy for so many years, on average, people in studies that eat more fat, and this is especially true in the 80s, 90s, uh, and the aughts, people that eat more fat would be more likely to smoke, drink too much, not exercise, eat too much sugar, not eat you know, fresh fruits and vegetables, etc. And there have been many studies that have, actually, that have shown that to be true, that on average, if you take a baseline population of people who have a higher fat intake or higher red meat intake or higher saturated fat intake specifically, then, and you compare them to another group at baseline who uh, has lower fat intake or lower intake of red meat, you will see that, yes, that actually is true, that the group with the lower fat intake tends to smoke less, drink less, exercise more, and, and engage in other behaviors that are perceived as healthy. Um, because of we've been told for you know 50 years that fat is bad for us and meat is bad for us. In an ideal world, an observational study would control for all of those potential confounding factors, uh, like smoking or drinking too much or not exercising. But in the real world, that rarely happens. And even when some factors are controlled for, there are inevitably factors that are not controlled for and may not even be on the radar of the researchers. So for example, we know that people's gut microbiota actually may affect how they digest and absorb red meat and what the effects of red meat might be. A few years back, you might remember there was a lot of brouhaha about TMAO, um, which is a compound that is, is associated with the higher risk of heart disease. And some studies found that people who eat red meat have higher levels of TMAO because it's made from carnitine, which is in red meat. When, we, when I looked uh, more deeply at that study and I, I wrote about this, it became clear that um, there was no attempt to control for the gut flora of the people who are eating the meat. And if you, know, if you take someone who's on a paleo type of diet, who's eating a lot of nutrient-dense, whole foods, fresh vegetables, vegetables and fruits, nuts and seeds, starchy tubers that are all high in fiber, and they, they would have a phenomenal gut flora in that, uh, in that case versus someone whose intake of meat consists of burgers, KFC, sandwiches on white bread, and the typical American diet, their gut flora is, is probably going to be seriously impaired. And the way that those two different people respond to red meat and then, then subsequent TMAO production will be completely different. And that is not being controlled for in any studies that I know of. So the other problem is these studies often don't consider diet quality. And I, I alluded to this before. If you consider two hypothetical people, uh, a person who's on a, a low-carb diet that eats primarily you know, highly refined fats like industrial seed oils found in processed foods and foods cooked in restaurants, or a person who's on a low-carb diet that eats primarily natural fats from fresh whole foods like meat and fish, avocados, nuts, seeds, etc., that are prepared at home, is it logical to predict that these two people will enjoy the same health, the same protection from disease, and the same lifespan? Of course not. Yet that is exactly what most of these observational studies assume. They all suffer from what is called nutritionism, which is a reductionist idea that all, you know, a nutrient is a nutrient. A carbohydrate is a carbohydrate, a fat is a fat, a protein is a protein, a calorie is a calorie, and 
they, uh, you know, virtually every study with some notable exceptions don't pay any attention to the quality of the nutrients that are being consumed. So in order to really determine whether a high fat diet affects the health of the gut microbiome, what we, you know, independently of any of the other factors that we've mentioned, you'd need to, you know, ideally you'd, you'd recruit a group of people who are following you'd lock them up in a metabolic ward where you can control all of the other variables and you would get them to follow a nutrient dense whole foods diet. So they would all be eating fresh, whole nutrient dense foods, but one group would eat a lower fat diet and one group would eat a higher fat diet. And then you would observe them over a period of, you know, whatever period was deemed appropriate and you would watch for changes. And then that, Example, you'd really be more comparing apples to apples and you'd be isolating the variable of fat intake. And, and ideally, you would have them consuming the same kinds of fats so that that wasn't also you know, part of, uh, didn't become a confounding factor. But as you might suspect, that, that would be an extremely expensive study. It's almost certainly never going to happen because um, most of those kinds of studies at this point are funded by drug companies or pharm you know, pharmaceutical companies. Uh, there's no reason that they would do that. And the funding, public health funding for studies like that, especially very expensive studies for like that, uh, like that is, is declining, not increasing. So having said all of that, I will point out that I think there are at least some lines of evidence suggesting that at least in some cases, a very low carb or ketogenic diet may not be optimal for the gut flora over the long term. I um, talked about this with Jeff Leach, I think several years now. He is one of the scientists that works on the American Gut Project, which is one of the first projects to really set out to sequence the, the, the gut microbiome. And he has sent me some early results from people who had sent in stool samples uh, for to be analyzed by American Gut who were on self-identified with a very low carb or ketogenic diet. And he had noticed that there were some patterns of gut flora in those people that were not optimal. Now you have to take this with a huge grain of salt because these were not controlled studies. They probably, you know, the same sort of observational confounding factors could be present here. There could be a selection bias. I mean, this is not a controlled study at all, but as I discussed with Dr. Um, Justin Sonnenberg from Stanford on my podcast a few years back, we, we know what feeds the beneficial gut microbiota. They're called microbiota accessible carbohydrates or MACs as he calls them. And certainly non-starchy vegetables uh, contain some of those fibers that feed beneficial bacteria, but so does starchy plants and fruits, which would be eliminated on on a keto or a very low carb diet. And so do uh, some foods like legumes and, and, and whole grains, which have their own issues, which we've talked about. But um, the point being that on a very low carb or keto diet, in some cases for some people, depending on how they go about it, their fermentable fiber intake would be lower and they may actually experience some consequences from that in terms of their gut flora. So oftentimes with patients in the clinic, if they're on a keto or very low carb diet, we might actually suggest that they, you know, do whatever they can to increase their intake of uh, fermentable fiber that's, you know, compatible with the keto approach 
or and or we might also suggest that they take some supplemental fermentable fibers, uh, non-caloric prebiotic supplements, things like lacto-oligosaccharides, FOS, um, non-starch polysaccharides, soluble fibers, and resistant starches, all of which can help feed the, the beneficial gut bacteria. So I think the takeaway here, as it so often is with these kinds of studies, is take them with a huge grain of salt, because in the case of nutritional uh, epidemiology or observational research, they are so problematic that some very prominent, well-respected, uh, even famous epidemiologists like Dr. John Ioannidis at Stanford, and he wrote a recent editorial called The Challenge of Reforming Nutritional Epidemiologic Research. This was published in JAMA um, just now in, in late August of 2018. And I'm just going to read you a couple little choice bits. The first sentence is, some nutrition scientists and much of the public often consider epidemiologic associations of nutritional factors to represent causal effects that can inform public health policy and guidelines. So this is what, you know, when you see a study that says low carb diet reduces your risk or increases your risk of death by 30%. That's what he's talking about here. However, the emerging picture of nutritional epidemiology is difficult to reconcile with good scientific principles. The field needs radical reform. And he goes on to explain why nutritional epidemiology or the observational research should really never be used to inform public policy because, as I said before, it's just a way of generating hypotheses. It's not a way of proving causality. And yet, and every researcher knows this, any science reporter should know it. And when researchers report their results to the media, most do say this is not, you know, this doesn't indicate that there's a causal relationship. And yet, you know, the media doesn't like that nuance. They want um, headlines that are flashy and will uh, get people to click on them. So the way it's reported inevitably and wrongly makes it seem like a causal relationship has been established. And then you get people changing their diet based on those headlines. You even get public policy and dietary guidelines in, in you know, for whole countries being based on these observational studies that were never designed to inform public policy. So I, I think this is a huge issue. Uh, I'll be writing actually in the near future, a lengthy critique of observational um, data in nutrition and how it has really, um, I think caused a lot of harm over the last uh, 30 to 40 years in terms of the uh, creating confusion amongst the general public and medical professionals and leading us astray with our dietary guidelines and actually encouraging a focus on nutritionism and reductionism where we just think in terms of, of macronutrients and quantity of them, like how many carbs and how much protein and how much fat versus the quality of the diet that we should be eating. And that's really what is most important. Uh, if we all just ate real food, you know, forget about paleo or keto or, you know, high carb, low carb, anything. If we all just ate real food that didn't come out of a bag or a box, we would not be in the position that we're in today. And, and so this is real harm that this approach has caused over the past several decades. And I think we really need to address that in order to move forward.
Okay, everybody, thanks for listening. I uh, hope this was helpful. Carrie, thanks again for sending in your question. And um, for those of you who would like to send a question in, that's chriscresser.com slash podcast question. And we'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.